Morning, folks. So, um, there's a couple of things I need to, I suppose, say before I start. Um, Firstly, that um, for those who are new or are visiting, welcome. Um, This whole year, we've been going through and looking at the Bible. We've been looking at, right from the word go, we had Ben and Graham give us a very thorough discourse of the overall story of the Bible. And throughout the year, we've had many people talk about different things. We've had people talk about Titus and different characters from the Bible. And um, so when um, Graham approached me about uh, having an opportunity to speak, it was under the idea that we would have... Uh, something that would sort of be slightly different to where we've gone before. And this was back in August, and I've been, ever since then, going through and doing loads and loads of reading. And I can honestly say that I've done much, much more in the way of preparation for this sermon than I have in all the other sermons I've done. Um, It is going to be slightly different because... What I sense is that actually there's something that God's been really showing me, and over the last period of times, I've just got such a blast and such a buzz as God has showed me various things, and hopefully I want to share a little bit today about what's going on. Um, I will say that as part of this journey of discovering about what God's going to show me, I've taken notes. And uh, the notes are quite extensive, <laughs> and I'm going to put them onto the um, church website for you to look at. Um, they are quite extensive. Uh, they're not the sort of notes you can just read in a couple of minutes. They are going to be notes that you'll sort of maybe sort of read a little bit, ponder a little bit, take away, then come back and read. Um, but the idea is that what you're going to see this morning is just a mere fraction a mere fraction of what God's been showing me and God's been really pouring out to me about what he wants to do. Okay, so I I also need to say before I start that I do need to credit a number of different people who I've read over the last month, Bill Johnson, Steve Long, Ron Calmere, very instrumental in shaping what uh, I'm going to share today. So what started me on this idea was... The idea about how do we, as New Testament Christians, approach the Old Testament. And one of the things that I've come across in my many years in Australia, Canada, America, and over here is the difficulty of approaching the Old Testament. Okay? Quite often, I've come across people who say, I can't comprehend what's going on in the Old Testament. I'm just going to ignore it, and I'm just going to concentrate on the New Testament. And I've come to realize that actually that's not really what God wants us to have. If God wanted us just to have the New Testament, he would have just given us the New Testament and then that would have been it. But he's given us the whole Bible, which means that actually everything that's in the Old Testament is there for a plan and purpose and is designed to help us. And so what I hope to do is pick out some of the things of how it can be helpful for us to approach the Old Testament. There's a picture up there that uh, you've got two kids looking at a painting. 
Sometimes that's what it feels like when you look at the Old Testament. You open up a passage and you read it, and you just go, I haven't got a clue what this is about. And you think, well, what am I supposed to do with this? How am I supposed to approach it? And unfortunately, sometimes we can feel the sense of, well, let's just stick to the safety net of the New Testament, because that's very clear. It's all about love and acceptance and grace and nice, loving things. The Old Testament seems really, really difficult to grasp and understand. It's interesting, I came across this uh, guy called Marcon, and he was a follower of Paul in the second century. He was someone who followed Paul, and like many Christians today, when he looked at the Old Testament and he looked at the teachings of Christ, he saw there was a clear difference. And so what he started to propose was that the teachings of the Old Testament were no longer relevant and then started to propose that actually Christians should basically ignore the Old Testament and basically not actually read it. And so what ended up happening was that he was branded a heretic and cast out because the whole thing was is that the Old Testament is fundamental and important in us, not just for what we know about history, but for many other things. So I want to start off and look at um, 2 Timothy 3, 14, 17. Again, all of this is in your notes. But in that particular scripture, Paul talks and writes a letter to Timothy. And in that it says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, because you know those from whom you've learnt it, and how from infancy you have shown and known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So the context here is that Paul is writing this to Timothy. The reports indicate that this letter, Timothy got this letter around about 66 AD. Uh, The Gospel of Luke wasn't written for another 15 years. The Gospel of John wasn't written for another 20 or 30 years. And many other letters weren't written as well. So when we look at this, and this also leads to the verse that we all know off by heart, all scripture is divine breath from the glory of God. But what we don't understand is that at this moment in time, when Paul is saying this to Timothy, the Holy Scriptures are not letters which haven't been written yet. These are things from the Old Testament which all Jews would have been involved with. And Paul even goes forward here to say that actually the Scriptures, the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament were influenced the Holy Scriptures were influential in helping him to be able to come to Christ. So, the idea is that the Scriptures of the Old Testament modeled and shaped who Timothy was. And if it modeled and shaped who Timothy was, it would have modeled and shaped many of the people in the first and second century who came to Christ. Because that is what they had available for them because most of the New Testament wasn't written available at that period of time. Let's have a look at Jesus. How did Jesus approach the Old Testament? Well, we start off with the situation where he gets baptized by John the Baptist. He goes into the desert, and he's tempted three times by the devil. In each case, he replies from a scripture from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy and Leviticus, He uses scripture 
that he would have been able, he would have been read and learnt as a nice, I suppose, up-and-coming Jewish boy. The idea is that Matthew is trying to say that Jesus knew the scriptures. Later on, it says that as, as the Pharisees tried to do it many times, tried to accuse him of many different things. But in Matthew 15, Jesus replies to the disciples twice using scriptures from the Old Testament. Not only that, but there's also an interesting story that Matthew 19 talks about, this rich young man. This rich young man comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to get eternal life? And Jesus doesn't say, follow me. Jesus says, have you, connect, have you kept the commandments? And he was like, well, which ones? And he quotes scripture, have you loved your neighbor, loved uh, your, love the God is all your heart? He quotes scripture that is influential in what he's trying to achieve. And the idea is that when we start to look at what Jesus did, Jesus quoted from 24 of the Old Testament books. Now, if the idea that the Old Testament is irrelevant, then when we look at Timothy and Paul, then there's a bit of a clash. If we look at the um, Gospels and what Jesus did, there's a bit of a clash. The fact that Jesus used quotes from the Old Testament, the fact that Paul in many of his letters used quotes from the Old Testament, indicates that the Old Testament still holds relevance for us Christians. But how do we approach it? Well, this is the question I'm hoping to possibly answer today. As many of you know, when you look at the Old Testament and you take a poll of everyone here, we'd probably say that most people would say that the God of the Old Testament is judgmental, bitter, likes death, and lots of other negative connotations. But they're not quick to basically understand what's going on in the big picture. Hebrews 34, verse 6. In the presence of Moses, God makes this declaration about who he is. And in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness. Slow to anger, full of compassion. I did some detailed studies of those original words in the Hebrew, and they talk about the sense of it's not just slow to anger in the sense of you do it once and then boom, he reacts. It's a long, long, drawn-out process of slow. It's a sense of compassion that is not just a bit, but it's an overwhelming, like a Mount Everest version of compassion. This is what God is declaring at Mount Sinai, who he is. And it's not just him who declares this. If we look at Nehemiah, Nehemiah 9, after the whole process of rebuilding the wall, what do the people do? They come to a point of declaring who God is. And this is what they say. But then our ancestors became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader to, in order to return to their safely. But you are a forgiving God, a gracious and compassionate God, 
slow to anger, and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. The idea that God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is two different things is not true. It is not true at all. I've met a number of people who, over the years, they like Jesus because he's a lovey-dovey, sort of coverly, sort of, yeah, yeah, I can easily get on board with Jesus because he's cool and he's loving and peace man and everything like that. But the God of the Old Testament, that just shows that actually, no, I don't like God at all. But that's missing the point of what's going on in the Old Testament. God is not like suddenly had a brain freeze and had a character transplant when we've moved into the New Testament. He's still the same all those years. But there's an understanding that we need to realize about what we see in the Old Testament versus the New Testament. Because if we shut out the Old Testament, we miss so much. And I've just been overwhelmed. And I must admit, I've just been buzzed going through and learning this. I've just been buzzed. Just, yeah, it's been fantastic buzzing. As God's shown me bits and bits of who he was revealed in the Old Testament, I've gone, wow, is that what you were like, God? In the Old Testament, how this is, how this applies to me. So we come to... Three things to consider, and I, I want to make it clear right from the word go that these three things are, I think, very important because we do not want to discount what's happened in the Old Testament. The notion that actually everything from the Old Testament is bad and therefore we can ignore it is a fallacy that's wrong. The idea that everything from the New Testament is good, everything from the Old Testament is bad, we can't, we can't accept that. And I'm going to hopefully help you to be able to realize what this is all about. So there's three things to consider, and I've put pictures up there to help you. First thing to consider is what ended when Jesus died on the cross? That's the first thing to consider from the Old Testament. What ended when Jesus died on the cross? The second thing to consider is, what did Jesus modify that was mentioned in the Old Testament? And I will talk about that in a moment. And the third thing is, what things from the Old Testament still apply to us today? There are some things that God has declared in the Old Testament that are still relevant and we must follow. And hopefully I can sort of lead you through that. So, the first thing. What's ended at the cross? Did everyone bring their lambs and goats to slaughter today? No? No, no slaughtering of lambs or goats? Well, we can be thankful that we no longer have to do that. We sang a song about the Lamb of God. Now, if you were a new person who came in and you saw that, that idea of Lamb of God, you'd go, why, why a lamb? What, what's the point of the lamb? Why is it a lamb? Why is it not a dog? Why is it not a, uh, a cat? Why is it not an elephant? What's the significance about Lamb of God? It's from the Old Testament that we get an understanding that we can sing that song, the Lamb of God, if we ignore the Old Testament, we come in and we look at that phrase and we go, I'm not quite sure why that's there. 
But going through the Old Testament, we can see very clearly what that phrase means. Now, there are, I think, six covenants that God sets up in the Old Testament. The main one that I want to talk about is the covenant that's set up at Mount Sinai. The idea of what many people know is the Ten Commandments. In fact, there are 600, over 600 different laws or rules that were laid out during that time. And the interesting thing was, is that the important thing to realize is that at this moment in time, the heart of God is to have a people on this earth that represent him to all the nations. And so what he does is he gives them a list of things in which they can live by to be able to be a representation of who God is here on earth. And one of the things that involves is the whole idea of sacrifice. And so, because one of the things is that when we sin, there has to be some sort of penalty for the sin that happens. Now, in the Old Testament, what used to happen was it used to basically get your goats, your birds, your chickens, your whatever, and you would basically slaughter them as a sacrifice where blood is shed. And as a result of that, the penalty for the sin that you committed was temporarily put back. It wasn't erased, it was temporarily put back. But the idea was that this gave you a sense of being clean. And that's important because what God wanted to do was to have a people that were set apart. The word holy means set apart. Okay? So, can you two stand up for me? Can you stand up for me as well? Yeah. So, if you come up here. So, these are now set apart from the rest of you. So the idea is holiness is being set apart. What God wanted to have a group of people he could call his own, where he could foster in them his character, his nature, who could be a representation to the world of who God was like. The rest of the people were not part of that. When we look at what happens in the New Testament, you'll see there's a switch that happens. Thank you, folks. You can sit down. So the idea of sacrifices was quite relevant as part of the law, the Day of Atonement, the idea that someone would go into the Holy of Holies. And in that Holy of Holies, what would happen is they would find the very presence of God. Now, we know the fact that if you didn't purify yourself and you went into the very presence of God, bang, you were dead. You'd be dragged out of the Holy of Holies because you cannot go with sin into the presence of God and live to tell the tale. Now, the important thing to realize is that at no point in the heart of God was he going to leave people like this. It'd be like me saying that if you want to reach this bar, you've got to try your best, but you're never ever going to get there. If I was to say to someone, okay, the first person who touches the roof, I'll give them 100 pounds, no one's going to ever do it because they can't. It's an impossible task. The notion that God would demand that you do it in order to achieve my acceptance, it's not going to work. 
because the idea is it's an impossible situation. But the idea that was threaded through at different times, through the prophets, through the various teachings, is that God had a better way. Hands up those people who've ever read a good whodunit novel. Hands down. Hands up those who ever watched a movie, which is a whodunit sort of crime thriller. Hands down. If you're anything like me, and I can give you loads of different movies and books, when you read it or watch it, you're going, oh, who's the per- was, it, was he the killer? Oh, no, no. Is it him? Is it him? And you're second-guessing, and you don't know what's going on. And then in the book and in the movie, there's one scene which they call the big reveal. And in that scene, it's, ah, if you watch it, if the uh, Agatha Christie's, they usually get around, and the detective says, and the killer is. And at that point, you go, ah, that's who it is. Now, if you go back and reread that book again or watch that movie again, you go, oh, there's that clue. Ah, that's what they were saying. I've watched a number of films the second time, and you go, oh, I didn't see that the first time. That clue there shows, oh, here's the really clear. Oh, there's another clue. But the first time, you have no idea what's going on at all. And that's a little bit like the first time when... God spoke through the prophets about the coming of Jesus. It's very easy in hindsight for us as New Testament Christians to go back and look, oh, there it is in Psalm whatever and Jeremiah, oh, that's quite easy. How could they be so silly not to see that? But in the same way, in that moment in time, some people are not necessarily getting it. Even when Jesus came, The whole idea is that there's moments in the Gospels that actually God speaks to them and they just don't get it. They just don't click. I'm not quite understanding this. That on the road to Emmaus, the idea is he speaks through it and they still don't get it. And it's when he disappears. Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah, that big reveal moment. There are loads of scriptures that God reveals himself And what God's trying to do and say here is that there's a bigger picture that's taking place. Now, I want to just read a a sort of passage. This is from Bill Johnson in his book, God is Good, which I think is quite, I want to read it in its entirety. It says, the Old Testament law is the teacher that leads us to Christ. It first reveals that we are sinners, but thankfully it doesn't leave us there. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, Galatians 3, 24, 25. Jesus not only satisfied the appetite of the law in bearing our judgment upon himself, he was the one the law was pointing to, much like a sign on a restaurant points to what's inside the building. The Mosaic law pointed to Jesus. It's interesting that when, Jesus, when the whole idea about the law came up, Jesus didn't simply turn around and say, actually, we're going to scrap everything from the Old Testament and we're going to start new. He said, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Come to fulfill it. What does that mean, come to fulfill? It means that there's something that he's going to do that's going to 
put together the whole process. He's not going to say what was in the past was rubbish and we're going to ignore it and we're going to start from scratch. He says, I'm going to be the ultimate to be able to fulfill what was tend about all along in the Old Testament and the law. So, the whole thing about what has finished at the cross is the fact that we no longer have to work to be able to be purified from sin. We're no, Paul talks about we're no longer slaves to sin. What Jesus did on the cross was establish a sense that through his perfect sacrifice, we can become free. Through his sacrifice, we can become free. Notice the fact that in the Old Testament, some animal was killed and blood was shed. And Jesus came and the ultimate sacrifice, his blood was shed. But instead of just having one sacrifice after another after another, we have the perfect, unblemished sacrifice that goes on forever and ever. And as a result of that, the whole thing about the work and the laws and the requirements and the rules and regulations has been fulfilled in what Jesus has done. That is something to be gracious about. We no longer have to fight to be able to try and purify ourselves. We can just simply believe in what Jesus did on the cross. And I can, I'm, I'm sure there are loads and loads of sermons out there that go into that more detail. There's, um, on the notes that I've got, there's a lot of other stuff I've put on there as well that well, you'll find very, very helpful um, there's a website that looks at the whole difference between the old law versus the new law. Um, sorry, the old law versus the new covenant. And that's quite important. Now, the next thing. What has changed or modified from the Old Testament to the new? There are things that have been spoken about in the Old Testament that have been slightly changed. They haven't been terminated they haven't been said, okay, we're going to abolish that. We're not going to use that anymore. They've been slightly tweaked, slightly modified. And so what I want to do is I want to go through and look at what are some of those things that God has given. I'm sure we're all with our mobile phones and our tablets have regular updates. I'm constantly having mobile phone updates every time I log into the internet. Oh, this, needs to be, this app needs to be updated. This needs to be updated. It's like there are certain things mentioned in the Old Testament that have updates or little tweaks. Now, first one is a real passionate thing for me because I love the idea of God as Father. And I think Jesus speaks volumes about God as Father. But in the Old Testament, God wasn't really renowned for being God as Father. As I'll talk a little bit later on, there are many, many names for God mentioned in the Old Testament, used very frequently. God as Father wasn't one of those. And yet when Jesus came on the scene, it's recorded that in the Gospels, Jesus referred to God the Father over 160 times. 160 times in his speaking, in his teaching, he refers to his relationship and connection with God as Father. 
Now, if Jesus has established that new paradigm, that new shift in our attitude to God, we need to take a look at that. We need to think, okay, in the Old Testament, the God, the God who was almighty, the more awesome one, the creator of all, still applies. But Jesus has shifted our focus slightly, and we have this revelation of the Father of God. Over the years, me and many people I know have encountered that father relationship, and it has made such a big difference. If you're someone who, as I'm speaking about the father heart of God, you're going, what's he talking about? I'd I'd encourage you to maybe connect with someone and just ask them what that means. The biggest transformation I had in my life was when I came to realize who the Father Heart of God was. Through many tears, through many pain, I came to the place of knowing who my daddy is. And that's something that Jesus came on earth to be able to establish. That change, that shift. John 16, 28 says, I come forth from the Father and have come into the world. I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. John 5, 19, therefore Jesus answered them and was saying unto them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless he sees the Father doing. When the disciples sit down and are learning daily from Jesus about life and what to do, naturally the the topic came up, well, how do we pray? And what does he start off with? Our Father. Right from the word go, he shifted how we approach God to something that's very different. The other thing that shifted was the role of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not going to say, because it's not true, that the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God came at Pentecost. Because as I'm about to tell you, there's been many cases where the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of God, came in different measures in the Old Testament. If you look at um, Judges 3.10, it tells us the Spirit of the Lord came upon Athenel as he judged Israel. Judges 6.34 tells us the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Uh, Judges 13.25 tells us the Spirit of the Lord began to move on Samson. I I found this next one quite amazing, actually. In Judges 14.6, it says, The Spirit of the Lord came on Samson in such a mighty way that he was able to rip a line apart. Wow, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? When you sort of, uh, (laughs) that would be quite sort of uh, scary to be able to have that sort of power come upon you. But we know from the story of Samson that that spirit didn't stay there. It departed at some point. And there are many other cases of situations. I'll talk uh, 1 Samuel 10. The spirit of God came upon Saul and resulted in him prophesying. We often, when we look at David and we look at Saul, we often think of Saul as gets a bad rap and probably maybe do. But at this moment in this part of the scriptures, the Spirit of God came upon him so much so that he started prophesying. So in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would rest on someone. After a period of time, that Spirit would leave. But what 
Jesus did on the cross changed the dynamic of how we are to be able to relate and link with the Holy Spirit. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? 2 Timothy 1, Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. And I could go on and on about the fact that the Holy Spirit now resides in you when you call on the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Whereas before it would rest on something. So for example, I'll get Chris. So the Holy Spirit would rest upon someone and then at some point would leave. For the New Testament Christian, it doesn't rest on us. It's inside us, indwelling in us. In the Old Testament, there was the the tabernacle of God, the temple of God, where the Spirit of God or the presence of God would rest in the Holy of Holies. The notion that as the Israelites were moving up towards the promised land, cloud uh, by day, fire by night, the presence of God would be in a physical location. But for the New Testament, there's a shift. It's not something that is outside, it's something that's inside us. Jesus tells us, tells the disciples, hey guys, I'm going to have to leave because there's something more powerful that's going to come along and it's going to help you and guide you. The next thing that's quite interesting is this whole idea of what the rest and the Sabbath is. Now, the first mention of the word Sabbath occurs in Exodus 16. Exodus 16:23 says, God said to them, This is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. The context of this is they're in the desert. They don't have a lot of food, so God gives them manna every day. But on the sixth day, he gives them a double portion of that because the seventh day is a day of rest. That's the first mention of the Sabbath. And then when we look at the whole idea of the covenant made with Moses and the people on Mount Sinai, it takes a much more bigger context than just simply waiting for certain types of manna. Okay? In Exodus 20, at the point where Mount Sinai and God outlines his people how to treat the Sabbath, this is what it says. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Remember, word holy is to set apart, different. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or your daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. And then it talks about the reasons of the creation. So the intention, the heart of what God wanted for his people was to have a day where they rested from their work. The unfortunate thing is by the time we see Jesus come onto the scene, the spiritual leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, have not only changed the focus, but now have added so many rules onto that that it makes it very cumbersome. Instead of the Sabbath there to provide help for the people, it was there now as a hindrance. So much so that you couldn't do this. Oh, that person did something. They lifted something up five centimeters. They've broken the Sabbath. That's not what the heart of God, the Father, was intending for his group of community back in the original point. 
What Jesus came to say is that actually, and we see quite a number of stories that talk in Mark, 12, sorry, Mark 2, says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is the Lord even over the Sabbath. And later on it says, come to me, all you who are weary and burning, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This sense that actually the sense of rest that's promised for New Testament Christians is important. Now, Hebrews 4 goes into quite a lot of detail saying that in the Old Testament, it was a specific day. And I'm not going to get into the whole things and arguments about Saturdays and Sundays and all that. But there was a day there set aside where the people of God stopped and had a day of rest. But what Hebrews 4 talks about is that it's no longer a specific day. We are to live in that eternal place of rest. Now, Bill Johnson talks about the idea that, yes, it's good to have a day where you don't do your works that sort of pile up. I have a rule that I've had for four or five years that I don't do any schoolwork on Sunday because I needed a time where I can step apart and have a day where I don't do any stuff. But what God's saying here is that we can live in the eternal rest of having to do works to be able to gain God's acceptance. The father heart of God is that God loves you. The idea that Paul battled with in Galatians, in the Galatian church, was that suddenly we have to still work for the acceptance of God the Father. And Paul in Galatians says, you foolish Galatians, that's not what we're talking about here. You do no longer have to work to gain God's acceptance. There is a place of rest that you can live in, not just on a Sunday, but all the time. That's what Jesus did on the cross. That's the power of what Jesus did. What was a stated out in the Old Testament has shifted and become a much bigger outline of what Jesus wants to do. There's a couple of other things I want to go through just very quickly. Prophecy. In the Old Testament, prophets were very set apart, very rare. Many of them would be grown up to be prophets uh, and the Spirit of God would rest on, they would be the voice of God. You could not hear the voice of God for yourself in the Old Testament. You had to rely on what prophets would say, maybe what the priests would say, and that was basically it. But shifts occur in the New Testament. When we look at 1 Corinthians 14, Paul makes it very clear he wants all of us to prophesy. I want to make it very clear that prophecy is not just for a select group of people who are super spiritual that they can do it. Everyone can prophesy. When I first started um, walking when I was a teenager, I saw people who were prophets and I thought, wow, that's amazing, but that's not for me. But actually, that's not true. I was taught, encouraged how to listen to God, how to offer encouragement. 1 Corinthians 14 talks about that prophecy should be building up encouraging words. 
The thing about it is that if we're relating to God the Father and we have that connection with God the Father and He speaks to us on a daily basis and He offers us encouraging words, He can also do that for the people that we see. As He speaks to us and says, why don't you go up and say that to that person? That's really going to bless that person's day. We're all called to encourage. We're all called to build up. That's the shift that's happened from the Old Testament to the New. Prophecy was in the Old, but it's shifted slightly in the New Testament. A couple of other things. The idea in the Old Testament, it's important to realize this when reading the Old Testament, that in the Old Testament, God was after a nation, a group of people. Now, with the revelation that Paul gave Paul, this is open to anyone. The whole idea of the Gentiles and the revelation that Paul realized and the clash that he had with Peter actually was that actually Paul was saying that actually God wants to bless everyone. If you look at the covenant God made with Abraham, God spoke to Abraham and says, I'm going to make a covenant. As a number of the stars that you can see in the sky, that is going to be the number of descendants that are going to call me God through your bloodline. Now, it's at some point, there has to be a realized, a connection that at some point, when Jesus came on the scene, all those who call on the name of Jesus become under that bloodline. Not in a physical bloodline, but part of the family of God. So we too become part of that, that sort of speaking, the covenant of Abraham. The last thing I want to say in terms of what slightly changed was uh, mentioned in Matthew 5. This, again, is a slight shift and change. Jesus talks about, it says, You have heard that it was said to people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger. The shift that Jesus is saying now is it's no longer okay that you could have a murderous intent and rage towards someone and get off scot-free. The intent now is what is in your heart is crucial. And so the shift that Jesus is saying here is actually it's getting back to not the outward but what's happening on the inside in your own heart. That's the key thing. So we have uh, lots of different things. We have sozo and we have lots of things that look at getting what is the heart issues inside you. What's going on inside your heart? Do you have this murderous intent to be able to do something to some instead of having that sense of love? With the shift that helped for me was knowing that I'm loved, cherished by the Father, when I realized that, I also had to come to the realization that the person standing in front of me is also loved and cherished by the Father. And if I have a murderous intent, oh, you, I'm not fulfilling the sense of walking in love towards the other people. The commandment that Jesus gives, love one another as I have loved you. That's a commandment. That's a rule, actually, that we're called to follow. We often say, oh, there's no rules in the Old Testament. But Jesus says, love one another. That's the commandment that I give you. That's something we need to think about. What is that sense? 
loving one another. Well, it starts from our heart. What's in our heart? Okay, this is the thing that quite a lot of people I've come across often say, well, there's nothing in the Old Testament that applies to us at all. There's nothing. Why bother reading the Old Testament? There's nothing there. Well, I'm ho- I, I've been just amazed at how much there is been in the Old Testament. The notion that everything was bad in the Old Testament doesn't apply is not true. I did some research, and there's over 15 different names for God. Jehovah Jireh, the one who provides, the one who's peaceful, the one who's righteous, the one who, the Lord our banner, there's endless names that go on, the Lord Almighty, the God of hosts, the God of, who leads us. These names declare and show who God is. If we don't take on board what God revealed in the Old Testament, we are missing a part of who God is. If I just simply said to someone else, oh, Gene is someone who wears glasses, then that's not really going to give much of a picture of who she really is because she's so much more than someone who wears glasses. And the important thing to realize is that if we just take bits and pieces from the New Testament and we don't fully allow God to reveal who he is, we miss out. The other thing that I found overwhelming was the sense of worship that's in the Old Testament. The sense of worship that David had, we, we, we've talked about it this year, I think I've, I've even preached about David, the sense that David had a heart after, a man after God's own heart, a sense of going after the presence of God. You talk to any of the worship leaders, any of the worship, we have a passion to go in after the presence of God, and that's what David had. The thing, the heart behind David worshipping God, going after God, still applies to us today. And it's important that we realize in the Old Testament, they stood in a place of declaration. They stood in a place of saying, we're surrounded, but we're going to declare. And you can read in the notes that I've got, there's many scriptures in the Old Testament that talk about the sense of worship, that talk about Psalm 23 is an interesting example. We pretty much know most of Psalm 23, and we can use and apply that. But the sense is that this is a sense of what God's like. God has not shifted or changed. He's not suddenly had a change from the Old Testament when Matthew 1 starts that he's going to suddenly have a schizophrenic change of behavior. He's still the same, but it's just glimpses of changes that have taken place. Okay, we're on the home stretch. So, with all that in mind, those three things, what has ended, what has shifted or modified or changed, and finally, what still stays the same, how can we use those to be able to go through and read the Old Testament? I believe we've got a couple of people coming up uh, in the future that are going to talk about their own journeys, about how they read the Bible. But a couple of things that I want to talk about. The idea is that as New Testament Christians, we have the benefit of looking through things like glasses. We can see through glasses of what Jesus did on the cross a little bit more clearly of what was mentioned and brought up in the Old Testament. 
because of the fact that we know what Jesus did on the cross, like that reveal in the film or the novel, we can look back and we can see, ah, that's what's happening there. That's what's taking place. The idea that as we read something, we can actually go through and the light of what God's got done on the cross can be revealed to us. But the other important thing is, it's all about having a connection with God. Reading your Bible is not something that you're forced to do. It's not something that you're condemned if you don't do. It's designed to be able to establish a connection with God. That's the goal that the heart of the Father wants, to have that connection. So, with that in mind, when we read the Old Testament, we can approach God with the sense of, Father, show me. What do you want me to gain from what I'm reading in this passage? What do you want me to understand about you from this verse? The Holy Spirit, which resides in us, is there to guide us. Holy Spirit, help me to understand what this means to me. That straightaway is establishing the connection. That's the goal of what the Father wants to do in the Old Testament. Establish that connection. So one of the things I want to challenge you with is... As you go forth, think about when you read the Old Testament the next time, what sort of things are taking place? Is this something that ends with Jesus dying on the cross? Is this something that Jesus gives a modification to? Or is this something that still is relevant for me to follow? Hands up those people who uh, read... Um, and was touched by David and Goliath's story. Hands up those who've ever read it, heard about it, Sunday school. Okay, can you keep your hands up if you came away from that uh, throwing stones at tall people? <laughs> no one. Okay, we all know that there's that story we hear at kids' school, we know that we don't throw stones at tall people because it's inbuilt. We somehow know it. But there's so much more of the Old Testament like that, we need to find what's the connection that God's trying to say to us. So my lasting thing is, it's all about connection with God the Father. He wants to bless you. He wants to encourage you. He wants to reveal to himself to you. There's so much I have discovered in the last month or so that's in the Old Testament that God showed me. What about this, Paul? What about that? What about this? Do you like what I did there? It's amazing. I've just got such a buzz. So the notes I've got, the notes I've done, will be put onto the website. Feel free to go through them, read them, discuss them, pour through them. Uh, I will say they are not finished uh, because I'm still getting, even this morning, stuff being poured in. God's waking me up and giving me stuff. And I love it because that connection with God the Father is still there. What about this, Paul? What about this? Let me show you this. I love it. Because that's what God is. He wants to have a connection with you. He wants to relate to you. He doesn't want to stand away from you. He wants to be close. He wants to hug you. That's what Abba Father is all about.